Hey there, everyone. This is Dave Dubow. Welcome to another episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. Today, I'm really looking forward to having a chat with our special guest, Mike Rosehart, who you can tell from looking at the young fella is not that old. However, he's a very, very experienced and very accomplished real estate entrepreneur, now a full-time entrepreneur. His claim to fame as being one of Canada's earliest retirees, I believe at age 24. Is that correct, Mike? Was it age 24? He built up a portfolio of over 17 properties. Very, very quick time frame. He started off when he was 19, bought his first revenue property at that age. So definitely rocking and rolling it. He's also a very, very smart guy. You know, you've heard about Ivy League people, Ivy League students, Ivy League university graduates. Well, that's what he is as well. So he's got a very interesting background. But before we dive into that, Mike, why don't you tell us, you call the Burr real estate snowball method. That's what you've done a lot of your investing in. What exactly is the Burr real estate snowball method? Yeah, so the Burr, by the way, thank you for the introduction. You're very kind about being smart. I, you know, I feel like I'm just a hardworking guy. But you know, the, the thing of it is, I discovered kind of early on my I guess second property, I stumbled on the fact that you could buy a property that was undervalued. And, you know, back in, I guess, 2012, when I was doing this, there weren't a lot of people back then that were talking about the bird. It wasn't really a thing. It was like, you could find an undervalued property, you could fix it up, you could add some value to it. And hey, if after you refinanced, it's still cash flowed, that was a huge win. And so the, the appeal for me with real estate was, you know, I was investing in stocks and things like that. And I'm like, I can't get the kind of returns I can in real estate because of leverage. So I can borrow at you know, three and a half percent back then, even cheaper now, borrow at three and a half percent and then lever up five to one. So I could put 20% down and be levered up five to one. And if my return on asset was 10%, that means I can make 40 or 50% after cost of debt. So, and that was if I didn't add any forced appreciation, that was just, yeah. with, you know, cash flow and a, and a modest one or 2% appreciation. Mm-hmm. And of course things, you know, typically go better than that if you figure out how to, how to unlock that value. But the BRRRR is the idea that you can find an undervalued asset. And the BRRRR acronym is you buy, you renovate, you rent it out, you refinance it, you pull out your down payment, and you repeat the process. And it effectively allows you to tax-free withdraw from the property, because you don't pay tax until you sell, all of your down payment, and then roll it into another property. And so you could theoretically BRRRR, and I did a series of BRRRRs before I quit my day job. I worked in consulting after I graduated university. I went to university. 17. So I was done by, by 20. I was almost 21. I just turned 21. So I had four year, four year IV degree at the time I was 21. I was working full time. And while I was working full time, I used that income to buy property. So I saw the job as a means to finance and use the job for, you know, as long as I needed to, and as a means to save up down payments. And then once I had, I did it to a point where I saved my first down payment. Actually, I graduated school debt free. I worked full time while I was in school from 17 to 21, and then invested all that capital into, into burring. And that's basically how I got going. So I got the first and second one done with savings and then turned that into four and turned that into eight and then turned that into basically 16 and then retired and then blew up our real estate portfolio way bigger. And now I've sort of scaled back. Very, very cool. So you went to university at age 17. What was it that, so yeah, obviously you are a smart guy. <laughs> you went to an Ivy league school, you're, you're a smart guy. So what was it that inspired you to really dial it in and focus on real estate as an investment class at such a young age? 
I think, again, it's the appeal. To me, there's two things that appeal most about real estate over all other asset classes. Is one, I think real estate's very approachable. Well, so the first one's leverage. Leverage is number one, the most powerful thing. Until you're really wealthy, like until you start getting the higher net worth class, you can't go leverage to buy a business. No one's going to lend you the money, but they'll lend you to buy real estate. Even at 19, I was able to convince a bank to lend me uh, real estate. They wouldn't lend me anything for businesses. I tried to buy businesses and they wouldn't. I tried to borrow for stocks and they wouldn't lend to my portfolio. But if I went and brought them a, a solid piece of real estate, the cash flow, all of a sudden we had a different conversation. And so at a young age, I was able to convince the bank to lend me money. And that's that, the beauty of real estate. It's the easiest asset class to leverage, the highest loan to value. So some people could do 5% down their first deal or 20% down. I did the 20% down method and, and borrowed the rest only because I wanted to save the private mortgage insurance. But it, the idea with real estate is, is that it's, I think there's like three really attractive things is leverage is super attractive because if you're buying strong cash flowing properties with good returns on investment, you're looking at levering five to one. That's an amazing return you can't do in the stock market. You can't do, but you can do it later on as a really rich entrepreneur buying businesses. You can lever five to one. But in the beginning, no one's going to hand you a $3 million loan to buy a business. So I think it's a very, for the average person, real estate is a very approachable asset class. And so that's the, the allure of it. And, you know, it's from a, I guess someone, you, you called me smart in the beginning. And I just work hard. Like that's the truth. I, I studied harder than everyone else did. And that's why I did well. Maybe I had a little bit of smarts, but really it's hard work. And, and that's the thing that I loved about real estate too, is that when you look into real estate, it's a lot of mom and pop, especially, you know, single family, duplex, triplex, and a lot of the markets, institutional investors don't touch that space. They stay out of it. So it's easy to develop a competitive advantage in that market because it's so dispersed and it's so unsophisticated. So if you were to develop a good set of systems, which I did early, early on, I was able to exploit a competitive advantage. I know that sounds like a lot of technical jargon, but the idea was that like people don't know the value of their properties. They don't know how to maximize the value in their properties. So I would buy three bedroom properties that had unfinished basements, convert them to duplexes, add three more bedrooms. And as a single family, I paid market value, but now the property is worth significantly more and I'm getting double the rents the other owner was. So I've taken the same square footage property and re allocated the square footage so that it produced twice the rent for me. And all of a sudden now it's a really strong cash flowing asset. It's more valuable to the bank, more valuable to another investor, and it's way more valuable to me. No, oh, that makes complete sense. So one of the things it sounds like you got very good at, in addition to everything else, but is finding off-market deals. So Mike, why don't, if it's okay with you, why don't you share with us what's working for you now or what's been working for you recently when it comes to finding good off-market deals? Yeah, it's a good question. In the beginning, I didn't find off-market deals. I started on MLS like everyone else did. I started buying there. And there was, there's still tons on MLS that's fantastic. Even today, I'm still proud to say like over half of my deals have come from the MLS from like pocket listings where they just go up the first day and we grab them undervalued or you know through the real estate network of connections with realtors, you can find a lot of great deals. And I consider some of those deals private in nature. If it hasn't if all the eyeballs on MLS haven't seen it yet, it's not technically a public deal. I think it's still partially private. So right. a lot of people discount the MLS or realtors as a source of private deals. That's been a big one for me. I just networked with a lot of realtors and they called me when, hey, Aunt Sally wants to sell her house. She doesn't want a bunch of people going through it. Mike, I just want to make a quick commission. I know you're going to close on it. I'm like, yeah, thank you for calling. Here's well, yeah, your 2.5% commission. You know, the pocket listing, right? So you get, you get first dibs before it even 
So what you're saying is, in those kind of situations, the realtors might not even put it on the MLS. They'll just connect with you because you know you can buy it quickly, and you've got a direct. Yeah, that's, that's it's MLS, and I've already got an offer signed. Once all the realtors have seen it, once everyone's jumped on it, and so speed to market was one of the competitive advantages. But my first few deals were again just MLS deals where I unlocked value. I found a, I bought a single family at single family pricing, but then saw value other people didn't. I saw if I added a kitchen, a bathroom, and a few bedrooms, then it was a totally different space that rented differently. And so that was a big one was design. I just saw differently than other people, I think. And I levered down on that and did it big time, right? After I retired in 2017, I started joint venturing with people. I started doing just to see what I could do. So we got like 50, 60 properties. We blew it up, had a lot of fun. That's when I started like doing the door knocking techniques to find deals because I couldn't find enough on MLS. I could find out for myself personally to buy, you know, one a quarter on MLS, but to buy, we were buying like one a week for like a year at one point. And to buy that many and to connect that many deals with, with investors, that's when you have to start really going hard on like the Facebook marketplace, the Kijiji, running ads, just talking with like all the wholesalers in town. I had bird doggers out there. It wasn't myself knocking doors. A bird dogger is someone you pay a small fee to to connect you with a lead. So they just give you a phone number of someone who's interested in selling. They don't even put it under contract. You go lock it up under contract. So a lot of that was a, how I got a lot of deals you know, later on. But yeah, private deals are a great way to find properties that are you can get a competitive advantage on. Very, very cool. So sounds like the other thing that you've really dialed in and systematized is a whole thing about working with investors and joint venture partners. So just give us a little idea of what does a typical deal with a joint venture partner look like for you? I, I'll, preface, I'll preface it with this. I don't JV like I used to anymore. Okay. So one of my greatest learning outcomes from 2017 to 2020 was I overvalued the capital. I didn't believe in myself enough. And I started JVing 70-30, believe it or not. I took 30% and I gave 70 away. And I was bringing deals that were like 60 cents on the dollar. So we'd make a hundred grand and I'd make 30 and they'd make 70 and we do it in like four or five months. And I left a lot of money on the table. Yeah. And then I started scaling where I charged, I took no cash flow. I did 50, 50 JVs where I just took 50% of the upside and I gave them all of cash flow. I had some terrible JVs for me, but great JVs for my partners, right? And so I, I learned quickly that it's important to negotiate in the JV structure. That was my attractiveness was that I was going for volume. And then I realized that, you know, late, sometime in 2019, and I hate to say this, but I very rarely JV anymore, only because the complexity attached to a JV, having to have a, another stakeholder, I prefer to just raise the capital and then borrow the money at four or 5%, and then the rest of it at say, you know, 10 or 12%. And if you're buying cash flow and properties, you typically end up having more cash flow in your pocket and not having to share the equity. So I learned the hard way that, you know, JV partnership can be a great way to scale, but you're getting a lot less of the deal. And so yeah, I just, it's just a change in preference, to be honest. Having to, to manage all the JV partnerships and having all that communication, it's a great way to build a business, but it didn't feel all that passive to me. And so <laughs> no, I guess I'm like, geez, I, I don't feel retired at all. I'm on the phone with my JV partners like every day. You know, I was talking like, we were doing a lot of renovations and stuff. And I had a business partner who, who he left. And so when he left to take on another job, I had to take on a lot of the ops. And I was, a lot of stuff happened. You know, life happens and you yeah. lose a business partner. And then it becomes very difficult to take all their tasks on too, right? So I've been through a lot. And in that experience, I learned that joint venture partnership is a great way to build wealth if you want to go that route. But if you're looking to maximize profit per deal, 
joint venture might not make the most sense. So it just depends. Well, on and it, it sounds like you spoiled the hell out of your joint venture partners at the beginning. You gave away way, way too, too much. much. Yeah, fair enough. So, so, okay. So that was then that's what you're doing then. So what does it look like now? How are you structuring your deals now moving ahead so that you're not using JV partners? If I JV with a partner and I, I do selectively, like we expanded in the U S I went down to Orlando, Florida, and we had some fun down there. So it's not just Canada. I want to spend my winters down there. So it's more of a, it aligns well with our goals, but I am still doing some joint venture partnership where it's a 50, 50 split on cash flow and profit, which is the standard way of doing things. And then we bring in a management company to handle a lot of the management logistics. Okay. So, and, and I'll, I'll compensate a little bit more to cover some of that stuff. And I'll oversee like high level contractor, but there was a time where I was doing, we had like everything, right? And it was just too much mm-hmm. managing all that. It felt like a job. And so that's how I do a venture now, or I do a fixed return with the investor. So I structure their piece as debt on the property. I'll secure it as debt for their, the capital they're bringing towards the deal. And then I'll give them an equity sweetener. So I'll say, here's 10 or 20% of the deal. And I'll give you a 10% guarantee return with some upside. Here's where I think the deal is going to perform. You're guaranteed your 10% no matter what. That's how confident I am. And if it delivers better, there's your sweetener. So I've got a little bit more complex in how I do my partnerships, but it's more debt, I would call it, than the joint venture partnership. It's more like debt with a sweetener. So they aren't necessarily on title then in that case. You're, are you- no, I have full control. I'm on title. They're secured as debt. So, so do you basically- on title, I guess, is a charged mortgage. I'm sorry? They'd be on title as a, as a chargee, like a, uh, for a mortgage. Like an RSP second mortgage or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you basically go in, you buy the property, you put in the 20% down, you do the renos, you do all that stuff. Then you bring in your debt partner after the fact, one way or the other, usually some sort of a second mortgage type position. Is that correct? Correct. I'll bring the debt partner on in the beginning and after. So if I refinance with a better, with an A lender, say, and buy them out, they still have that 10 or 20% equity in the deal in most cases. Very cool. So just out of curiosity, because you lost me on that one, how are you getting them in at the beginning of the deal without having them on, on title? Or are they on title as well? They, they'd be on title, yeah. Oh, they would be. Okay. All right. I get it. You could, there are ways you could do it, though. You could structure it just thinking out loud. Like if you had a corporation that had a lot of assets in it, you could borrow like the general security against your corp, right? Like a GSA against yeah. your corp. And you can personally guarantee it as well. And so they have your personal net worth and they have your company's a GSA against your company if you want to do like a private lending that wasn't secured, or you could slap on a second as well. There are lots of ways to do it. If you wanted to keep title clean for the lender, then you could do it you know, through a corporate structure like that. Yeah, no, definitely makes sense. My goodness, time flies when we're having fun, Mike. So tell me a little bit. I know you've got, you've got a, a big presence online. You've got a YouTube channel, that sort of stuff. Tell us a little bit about that, how people can connect with you, and also what impact that's had on your real estate investing business. Yeah, I got on YouTube just to give back as a way to sort of teach others about financial independence. And it was supposed to be a channel that's really just designed to talk about like money, how to spend less money, how to earn more of it and how to maximize the returns on your, on your assets. But that was a great thing in that it's a very rewarding feedback loop. So you put in a lot of time, you know, and you put out a, a piece of content and you know, hundreds or thousands of people consume it and they send you back that positive feedback. It's, it's great. It's also great when I you know, share something and someone, I do a live every Wednesday, I go live for an hour, hour and a half on my channel. And wow. I do the Mike Rosehart show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. And people go on there and they'll, they'll challenge me on some of my ideas and some of my you know, plans. And I like that. I welcome that. They'll go on Instagram and after and DM me and get in there and be like, Mike, I don't know what this idea you had here. I don't know about that. Why don't you do it this way? 
And so that's been a great piece like to learn, right? And that I share and then I also learn and receive. So that's been great. It doesn't make a whole lot of money. So the whole YouTube thing for money, I wouldn't go for it if, if people are out for the money. But I suppose if you really monetize it, I don't have any courses that I sell or anything. I don't have any books yet. But I'd like to write a book someday when I have some time. The kids, you know, eat up most of the time these days because they're so young right now. But yeah, I think that it could be it could be a great way to raise capital. I really was raising GV capital when my YouTube channel was smaller. Now that it's bigger, I actually don't do a whole lot of raising capital from it. But I have raised capital before. Yeah, seven figures probably from the YouTube channel for sure of people who have found me, consumed my content, reached out and said, hey, Mike, I've watched 300 hours of your content. You don't know me yet, but I know you really well. Yeah. I'm ready to go. And so that was great. That was a good piece of building the brand online. And that is helpful. Well, then you have monetized your YouTube channel. It's done very, very well for you. In that sense, yes, I suppose. But building the brand has been, has been good. But like creating the videos, it doesn't generate any money that way. No, no, not. Yeah, you're not getting any ad revenue from yeah. it. So an hour and a half a week. How do you come up with content for an hour and a half a week? It's live. So we do a live stream where people bring questions in. And like, uh, yeah. actually, last, yesterday's was really good. It was action-packed. We did, uh, or like, I just, I, I get these ideas out of, you know, people message me on Instagram and say, hey, Mike, I want a market update. So we did an hour and a half of market update. And I just started with like, what are the four things that you, that determine a market outlook? So it's like demographics, interest rate, government policy, and the economy. So GDP and things like that. And I broke down those four and how that looks going forward. And are we going to have a recession? And people keep the content alive by just asking me questions. And so they're like the host, right? I'm just, I'm just answering their questions in a lot of ways. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Excellent. All right. So if they want to find you online, is the YouTube the best place to look for you? You're yeah, youtube.com uh, slash Mike Rosehart or at Instagram at Mike Rosehart. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I do about eight or 10 stories a day. So if you want to follow along on my journey. Sounds good. Well, Mike, thank you very much. And congratulations on all that you've accomplished at a young age. And yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Well, thanks very much for checking out the Property Profits podcast. If you like what we're doing here, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. Be very, very much appreciated. And if you're looking to create a regular flow of inbound investor inquiries about your real estate deals, then I invite you to attend one of my upcoming live online demonstrations. And you can check that out at InvestorAttractionDemo.com. Take care.